You can go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis 12. I'll meet you there uh, in a minute. Uh, we're going to continue in worship now as the ushers collect God's tithes uh, and our offerings. Just a reminder that uh, in our uh, giving, a significant percentage of our uh, of our budget here at Hope is to spread the gospel locally and globally. And so our offerings are not merely just paying the bills here at Hope Mississauga, but also sponsoring, sending, supporting uh, missionaries who are uh, reaching unreached people uh, here locally, because there are unreached people who are here uh, locally in the Toronto area, but also uh, to the ends of the earth. I want to uh, say Maraho, which is Kinyarwanda, uh, for hello. I want to bring greetings to you from uh, Harvest Bible Chapel in, um, in Mahoko, uh, a, a tiny or, or small village or suburb just outside of the city of Kisenyi uh, in, in Rwanda. And uh, I think I've got it. So this is, uh, this is uh, Mahoko uh, in Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda is called the City of a Thousand Hills. Aaron Best and I spent uh, a week there. Uh, remember last year, the, the whole series through the whole book of 1 Corinthians that took us from September uh, until June, uh, 10 months of preaching and teaching we condensed into four days uh, at a Bible college there in partnership with the Miller College of Bible and the Great Commission Collective, which is our network. We were hosted by Pastor John and his wife Zawadi, and uh, we stayed with them. There were about seven or eight of the students that were also staying at Pastor John's house, and so we shared all of our meals together. We walked to the class uh, back and forth uh, every day. And these were the amazing 30 students that we had the privilege of uh, teaching uh, for four days uh, straight. Many of them were local leaders uh, in, uh, in that church. Others of them had traveled from the Congo or from Tanzania to take part uh, in the class. They seamlessly, seamlessly flowed from languages like Swahili and French and Kinyarwanda. And then when they felt like in including Aaron and I. They spoke a little bit of English as well. And uh, it was such a, such a blessing. Thank you so much for our prayers. Thank you for our prayers for our wives and our children while we were away. Thank you for uh, prayers for safe travel. And uh, I hope that uh, the students learned even a little bit compared to what we were able to learn uh, from them. And so thank you so much for, uh, for your uh, prayers. As we come now to uh, the end of Genesis chapter 11 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, the title for today's message is All the Families of the Earth. And what we're going to see here is that right from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 is that God has a heart for the entire world. He told Adam and Eve, these image bearers of his, to fill the earth and to subdue it. He pronounced a, a blessing on them and, and God's design, even through all of the ups and downs of the first 11 chapters, God's intention is for the nations. Genesis 1 to 11 establishes that God created the world and that human beings messed it all up. We messed it up in the garden and then Cain made it even worse by killing Abel and then things started to look good with Noah, uh, but then, uh, so God uh, brings a flood, brings judgment, here's a fresh start, but then Noah, like Adam, takes from the fruit of the tree and sins with it. And then Noah turns out to be just like Adam. And then you have Ham, his son, and his grandson, Canaan, ends up being cursed. And then you get the Tower of Babel, and things seem to be spinning out of control. But God's heart is for all the nations of the world. And so if we're going to have a heart like God's heart, then we need to have a heart for all of the nations of the world. 
the passage that we're studying today is a little bit of a hinge of, uh, of the story. So the, the first 11 chapters, let me show you what I mean here on the screen. Genesis 1 to 11, theologians call the primeval history. Pri means first, eval means age. So it's the, it's the history of the first age. How, how was the world created? What were those people like who lived hundreds and hundreds of years? That was the first age. Uh, it covers 20 generations from, from Adam all the way to Terah. There's 20 recorded generations. There was probably many generations in between. Thousands of years of history are covered in chapters 1 to 11. But now we're going to see the story really zero in, focus, and slow down. In chapter 12, it's called the patriarchal history. Patri means father or, or family. Ark, of course, means first. So this is the history of the first fathers or the first family. And rather than covering 20 generations, it's only going to zero in on four generations. And rather than covering thousands of years, we're, we're just going to look at 100 or maybe 200 years of history. So God's heart is for our heart. God's heart is for the nations, and if our heart is going to be like God's heart, we must have a heart for the nations as well. So let me pray for us as we dive into God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we pray for your help right now. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would be able to uh, hear your voice speaking through your living and active word. God, we thank you for the blessing of what it's been to gather in your name so far today, to hear all of these different languages, reading from the Psalms, declaring your praise, this, this preview of, of what the new heavens and the new earth uh, will be like, where people are gathered from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with my tongue right now, and I pray that you would be with me as I speak in the language of English, uh, Lord, and, and that, that as I speak to uh, the hearers today, uh, in person or online, uh, those who uh, consider English their native language or those who are learning English as a second language, uh, Lord, I pray that your voice would speak so clearly and that it would speak beyond our intellect, beyond simply information for our minds, but that it would uh, speak to us spiritually and that it would lead to a transformation uh, in our hearts, Lord. We recognize that your heart is for the nations and we pray, God, that you would give us that heart as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we get to Genesis 12, we're going to wrap up uh, Genesis uh, chapter 11. So turn with me to ch chapter 11, verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Shem. And we've been tracking this phrase, toledot, or these are the generations, all the way through the book of Genesis. These are really the chapter headings for the original book of Genesis. And so we're on the fifth toledot right now, the generations of Shem. Now, if you look back at chapter 10, verse 21, we were already given Shem's genealogy. All of his five sons and then all of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We already had that summarized. But that was a broad, horizontal genealogy. In chapter 10, remember, all of these nations are being scattered all around the world. And you have all of these sons and these grandsons, the, de the, the descendants of, of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
But here, the, the genealogy reads a little bit differently. Rather than mentioning all of the sons, notice how it just mentions one son. Verse 10. When, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Just, he just mentions just the other sons and daughters, but he doesn't list them. Then look at verse 12. When Arpashad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor, and, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haram. So he's only following one son, and then, there, then the grandson, and then the great-grandson, and then the great-great-grandson. And what we have here is we sort of have mere images from Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 10. You have a 10-generation genealogy. Not a horizontal, broad, broad genealogy that's listing all of the sons and all of the grandsons and the granddaughters, but just following one line. In Genesis 5, it was taking us from Seth to Shem. And then in Genesis 11, it's taking us from Shem to Abraham. And notice that between the ninth and the 10th generation, then the genealogy gets broad again, where you have three sons who are mentioned. And so the book of Genesis is following this, this line. Remember, there was the promise that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, was going to crush the head of the serpent. This is following the family, the family line, to try to determine who is that offspring of the woman going to be. You'll also notice that, that there's a bit of a, a formula. It's kind of predictable, the, the way that it, it works. That when it, it, you put the father's name, lived this many years, then you insert the son's name. It just says that again and again. The only difference from chapter 11 to chapter 5 is chapter 5 kept saying, and he died, and he died, and he died. Chapter 11 doesn't emphasize that. It says how long the person lived, but doesn't mention uh, when they died. You can also notice if you look at verse 10 that Shem lived to be 600. You can see that the lifespans are decreasing. Shem lived about two-thirds as long as Noah lived. Noah lived to be 900 years. Shem lived for 600 years. So you're seeing after the flood, Shem was born before the flood, and he lived for two-thirds about as long as Noah lived because the, the atmosphere is changing. The world changed significantly after the flood. Then look at verse 12. Arpashad lived for 438 years. He lived about two-thirds as long as his dad, and then it keeps decreasing as the genealogy goes. So the, after the flood, people started living for shorter time spans. 
So in verse 16, we have Eber. That's where we get the the title or the name Hebrews. These are the Hebrew people, the sons of uh, Eber, uh, the Hebrews. In verse 19, it mentions Peleg. In chapter 10, it says, in Peleg's time, the lands were divided. That was in the, the time of the Tower of Babel. And then it concludes in verse 26 with Terah, who lived 70 years, and he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now look with me at chapter 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. So here's our, last, our, our next Toledot, Toledot number six. Chapter 11, verse 27, the generations of Terah, which is really the story of Abraham. And this is the background through which God calls Abraham. Look with me at verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So already we find a little bit about Abram's background. He came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, He came from uh, from, uh, Babylon. We also know that that there was some tragedy, some sadness in his family. Terah was still living, but Terah had to bury one of his own sons. Abram's brother Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. Verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Ur of the Chaldeans was a center for moon worship. They worshiped a god called Nana. That's not your grandmother. That's the moon god. And Milcah and Sarai, those names, that's the name of Nana's wife and daughter, the the queen of the gods and the, the princess of the gods. So Abram is coming from a context where people do not fear the true god, uh, where, where people worship this moon god so much, to, so, so much so that they are naming their children after the gods and the goddesses. We're told in Joshua 24 verse 2, this is Abram's background. This is his family story. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. That's Ur of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And in serving other gods, they named their daughters after the goddesses. And they didn't worship the one true God. Abraham did not grow up in a family that feared God. So when God spoke to him, he didn't have, he didn't have a context for understanding who this God was. He might have heard some things about his family history or his family story, but the, their culture was so steeped in the worship of Nana. Then we're told in verse 30, now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Sarai was barren. So Abram is surrounded by people who worship the moon god. His brother had died and he and his wife Sarai are struggling with infertility. Now understand the context here. Chapter 11 has just showed this rhythmic genealogy of 10 generations. When so-and-so was this old, he had a son. And and then when, when he was this old, he had a son. And then he had a son. And everyone's having babies. But then there's this one family that isn't. 
There's this one family that is struggling with infertility. Notice how there's no personal details given about anyone. It doesn't say that like Terah was really tall and that Abraham was kind of hairy and, and Nahor had bad breath. There's, there's no personal details given about anyone except Sarai. Also notice how it's repeated. Like, like we didn't understand where it says she was barren. And then comma, she had no child. Many brothers and sisters in this room right now know, know exactly how this feels. Other people in your family are just pumping babies out 24-7. All of your friends are, are more babies are coming, more babies. And, and you have no child. And you wonder, do, do I, am I somehow outside of God's favor and grace? Am I, am I somehow uh, uh, outside of his blessing? Am I doing something wrong? But we see here that this is the very family that God chooses to carry out his mission and his plan. And yes, we know, with those of us who are familiar with the biblical story, we know that they end up having a child. And, and, and so often in the Bible, we hear these stories of people who struggle with infertility, and in the end, they have a child. But we also need to understand that there's a 25-year gap between this call and the child coming. And sometimes the, the, the gap is a permanent gap. Sometimes the child never comes. And do we trust the Lord with that? And do we as a church family weep with those who weep? Do we, do we come along, do we pray earnestly for those who struggle with uh, infertility? Because these are the kinds of people that are very, very close to God's heart. And if we want to have a heart like God's, we're going to have a heart for people who struggle in that way. Verse 31 says that Terah took Abram and his son, and, sorry, took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, that's Abram's nephew, his grandson, Sarai's daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, the, a city that was named after the son who had just died, it says that they settled there. Haran had a, had a vision and an intention to go to the land of Canaan, but he just, he just kind of settled. You know what? We're not going to go any, any further. And so the story of Terah is quite sad. Verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. He died falling short of getting to the land of Canaan. Somewhere along the lines, God had given this call that we're going to study in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Acts tells us that the call actually came while Abram was in Ur of the Chaldeans. It didn't, it didn't come to him when he was in Haran. So maybe there was a reminder of the call when he was uh, in Haran that's recorded here in Genesis chapter 12. But chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go. 
if we are going to have a heart like God's heart, and if we are going to experience the kind of blessings that God wants to give, not just to us, but to all of the nations, there's, there's really three examples that we can follow here from Abram's life. The first one is this, that we need to obey God's call to go. We need to obey God's call to go. We don't know if Abram had ever heard very much about Yahweh, had, very, had ever heard very much about, about God, but all of a sudden, God wants to speak to him, and God says to him, go. He commands him to go. Now again, think about this from the original audience. The original audience was a, a, a people who had gone. The, the, the word go is, is repeated dozens and dozens of times in the book of Exodus. Let my people, say it with me, go. They were people who were called to go, and they were going from Egypt. They were going through the wilderness and going to the promised land. God calls us to go. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, come. You, you can't come without going. <laughs> they had to go from their nets. They had to go from their family business. They had to go from, the, from fishing for fish to fishing for men. There was a call to go. God's people are called to go. And notice what he says here. Go from your country That's Ur of the Chaldeans. Go from your kindred. He comes from the line of Seth. And to go from your father's house. Now, when Abram was setting out to go, there was no consulate or embassy for the Chaldeans in in Canaan. He couldn't make arrangements. There was no police force or, or customs uh, uh, officials or anything like that who were, who were there to try to ensure that this foreigner was, was to travel safely. There were no immigration officers that were intended to help, help Abram and his family get. In, in, in fact, in the culture in these days, I mean, there were some cities and there was some semblance of government, but You didn't expect the police to look after you. You didn't expect the government to look after you. Who looked after you? Your father's house. Your kindred. And so in in Abram's choice to follow God and to go, he was leaving behind any semblance of security. He was going to a place where no one was going to know him and no one was going to to give a rip about whether someone slaughtered him in the street or stole all of his property or captured any, any uh, uh, any of his family members. It didn't matter. He was leaving everything behind. The way that society worked was that you looked out for your family. And when we get to chapter 14, we're going to see Lot finds himself in some trouble Nobody calls the police. They call next of kin. And Abram has to go to war to try to get his knucklehead nephew Lot back. But when Abram is leaving his country, he's leaving all of the comforts of knowing the language, of, of enjoying and being familiar with the food, and the call. he's leaving all of that behind. But he's also leaving behind every semblance of security. All the people who were committed 
obligated to protect him. He was going out from under that protection and having to trust in the protection of God. So Abram was taking a huge step of faith here. Notice also that when we follow God's call to go, it's important for us to understand this, especially on All Nations Sunday. We are called to leave our country. We are called to, to leave our kindred. And so we, we need to make sure, we need to understand what is actually going on here. That, that when we dress in clothes that represent our nationality, when we speak in languages that represent our cultural background, we, we need to understand that in a sense, we are still holding on to these things. But, but truly, we've actually left those things behind. Let me, show you, let me show you what I mean. In, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says that our citizenship is now in heaven. So our primary identity is not our nationality or ethnicity or our language. We still hold on to those things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Colossians 3.11 says here in the church, here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Those distinctions, they still exist, but they're not ultimate. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. The, the thing that ultimately defines us is not our nationality or our ethnicity, but it is Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse 16, talking about Abraham and, and many others who walked the road of faith, it says that they desire a better country. Believe me, that country is not Canada. And that country is not whatever country you or your grandparents or your parents came from before they came to Canada. We as Christians are citizens of heaven. We are seeking a better country, a heavenly one. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to go to the bathroom and just take off your, your national dress or your, your clothes. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that none of that matters because it still matters. Because in that heavenly country... As we are all there as citizens of heaven, our national and ethnic and linguistic distinctions will still be intact. And so it's not that we get rid of them, we just put them in their proper priority. The world wants to continually say that our, that our skin color or our ethnicity or what makes us different from other people is the most important thing about us. But the Bible says our skin color, our nationality, our ethnicity is important, but it's not the most important thing. Christ is all and in all. So in Revelation chapter 7, ethnicity, language, nation is still intact where these people are standing before the throne in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. All tribes and peoples and languages. They're still there standing before the throne. But what are they standing before the throne saying? Look how diverse we are. That's not what they're saying. That's not why they come together. They come together to say salvation belongs to our God. That's what is it about. He is the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And then the beautiful city, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven at the end of Revelation. Look at what it says in Revelation 21. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. It's all about Jesus. The whole, the whole city, everything orbits around this new sun, the new light, the light of Jesus. And it says, and by its light, the nations, which will still exist, the nations will walk. And then it says, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. I mean, you can't get much further to the end than Revelation 21. The nations are still there. But the nations have to be in their proper priority. Jesus first. Salvation belongs to our God. He is the light that lights up the whole city. And yes, we are nations who representative from different languages and cultures and backgrounds. But we walk in the light that comes from Christ. So loved ones, we are called to go. We are called to leave whatever we happen to trust in for protection. For Abram, it was clearly his own family and his kindred. And he had to get out from under that to trust the Lord. What are you trusting in? What is protecting you that God is calling you to go out from? You see, it's, it's at the farthest border of your comfort zone where God is waiting to, to meet you. He is always calling us to go. He is always calling us to, to come to him, to leave behind what we are trusting in. It could be our, our finances. It, 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 it could be our health. It could be whatever it is God is calling us to go from what we are trusting in, to trust in him. We're a people who are called to go. And he says, go to the land in verse 1 that I will show you. I will show you. Abram was on a need-to-know basis and he didn't need to know where he was going. God just said, go. Jesus just said, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. What does that look like? Jesus is like, I'll, I'll, we'll fill in the blanks when we get there. But do you trust me? Will you go? Are we a people who are on the move? Hebrews 11 verse 8 says that Abram left not knowing where he was going. Now if all God had said was go... Abram, as a creature made in God's image, would be obligated to go. God's the boss. He's the king. We do what he says. If all God said was go, that was enough. But God is so gracious. Not only does he tell Abram what he needs to do, God may not have told him exactly where he's going, but God communicates promise after promise to Abram. Look at verse 2. So verse 1 says, this is what you need to do. You need to go. Verse 2, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So as Abram was going, yes, he was obeying God's call to go. But secondly, if you're taking notes, jot this down, that Abram was believing God's promise to bless. 
He was believing that God would show him a land and he was believing that God would bless him and make him a blessing. He says to, to, in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. The one who has no child. He, he tells Abram, trust me, believe me, I am going to make you a great nation. Imagine how hard that would have been for Abram to trust that. Then he says, I will, I will bless you. And then he says, I will make your name great. Does that sound familiar? Pursuing a name? Let us make a, a name for ourselves? That, that sounds like, like the people in Babel. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. God says, I don't want you to be like Babel. You don't need to make a name for yourself. God says, I will make your name great. And then he says, this is actually a command here. It doesn't come through in our English translations. So that you will be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing. So there's two commands. The command to go and then you will receive blessings. Your name will be great. You will be blessed. But God never gives us things so that we can just hold on to it and hoard it ourselves. He gives so that we would freely give. He says, go and be a blessing. Go and be a blessing. Those who follow God, those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, need to walk into every room and every situation and ask themselves, how can I be a blessing in this situation? So often, you know, I go into a, a store or I go into uh, my kid's school to pick them up, or I, I, I go to this place or that place, or I find myself sitting beside uh, someone. And normally it's just sort of like, what can, how can my needs be met right now? How can you at the restaurant give me the food that I want as quickly as possible without any interruption? How can you who's sitting beside me just allow me to get whatever reading done or goofing around on my phone? Or just, can you please give me some, some peace and quiet? And, 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 and person at the school office, if you could just quickly uh, you know, radio to get my kid uh, to, the, to the office so that I can take them to the appointment wherever they need to go. So often I'm just like, how do I get what I want out of this situation? That's not being a blessing. My, my wife, Lindsay, knows how to be a blessing. And, 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 and sometimes it drives me a little bit crazy because I'm like, I just want to get going. And, but there's a conversation that's starting with the person at the restaurant. And how are you doing? And let's talk about this. And, and a huge smile on her face. And that she arrives at the school with, with, with Tim Hortons, which is Canadian love language. And she's... She's bringing teachers and administrators little gifts, writing notes, random strangers. We went the other day, we wanted to go to this one restaurant, it was closed for an event, and I'm like, let's move on to the next restaurant, let's go. And Lindsay starts talking to some random person right outside. She's always being a blessing. That's how we need to be. Not, think, not, not selfishly thinking, how can I just get done whatever needs to get done? But how can I actually recognize that there's another image bearer in my presence right now? 
And I have been so blessed. So how can I, in a small way or in a big way, how can I be a blessing to them? So believe his promise to bless, but understand that when we believe that promise and we receive that blessing, it's actually a stewardship. We're not just supposed to wrap it in a handkerchief. We're supposed to multiply it. So believe God's promise to bless and to be a blessing. Then he goes on in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And then he says, in him... Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Notice how the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's a dishonoring, that's the crime. But the punishment is a curse. I will bless those who bless you. Notice how the word blessing is repeated five times here. In the primeval history, in Genesis chapter 1 to 11, the word curse is used five times. Curse of the serpent, curse of the ground because of Adam, the curse on Cain, the curse as a result of the curse that led to the flood, and the curse that was on Cain and the son of Ham. Curse, 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 five times. Now, in 11 chapters, now in three verses, we have bless, 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 five times times in three verses. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. God looks at Abram, a man with no children, and he says, I will make you a great nation. A man who served other gods. And God says, I will make your name great and I will bless you. Pastor Chris said this week, Abram was like that, that unexpected draft pick. You know, everyone's expecting the, the, the team with the first overall pick to, to, to pick this hotshot prospect from this university or from this a junior a sports team league. And then and the, the Raptors are famous for doing this. It doesn't work out, though. But, you know, you, you pick someone unexpected. That's, that's what happens here. And God just says, I'm just going to shower you in blood for no reason. There's nothing about you, Abraham, that is worthy to receive any of this blessing. And listen, that is what God has done to you. He, he looked out at us. First Corinthians says, not many of us were of noble birth. Not many of us were wise in the world's standard. Not many of us were wealthy. But God chose what was weak to shame the wise. He looked at us and he said, you know what? You're not much to look at. You don't have much going for you, but I choose you. And I'm going to bless you and I'm going to shower my love on you. And I'm going to call you to go and I'm going to call you to be a blessing. So God chooses to bless Abram, but it wasn't just about him. The, the, the mission was not just for God to bless one individual person. So often we live the Christian life as though God is just here to support us to do our thing. That's not it. It's not about us. It was never just about Abraham and it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It is about the, all the families of the earth. At the end of verse 3 it says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's original intention. God wants to bless all the families of the earth. And the reason is because all the families of the earth come from the same family. All the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth 
are ultimately just cousins in the same family because we all have the same great 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 grandparents named Adam and Eve. We all come from the same two people. This is why simply living in a secular humanist evolution-based society where humans developed at different stages and different places, that whole mindset, the theory of evolution promotes racism because it creates the myth, this idea that we all developed in different places and at different speeds and in different stages. And so one even race doesn't even exist, but one theoretical race developed faster than another. That's not true. It is a lie. And so, so many of the people that are, you know, claim to be anti-racist, they believe in evolution, which is fundamentally racist. But Christians believe that we all come from the same family. We all come from Adam and Eve. And that the blessing that was given to Adam and Eve, remember, God could have done a whole bunch of things after creating Adam and Eve. But what was priority number one? Okay, I'm creating these image bearers. Here we go. They've been established, they've been created. Teach them about fire. Teach them how to care for animals. Teach them how to build shelter. I would think of a lot of things that if I've created the first human beings, that would be on my to-do list. What was number one on God's to-do list? Look at Genesis chapter, um, so sorry, the, the, the point here is, uh, let's go to point three. Participate in God's mission to all the families of the earth. Sorry, I forgot to say that. Take a moment to jot that down. I'll take a breath. Participate in God's mission to all the families of the earth. Here's God's first priority on the top of his list. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then what does he do? As soon as he creates them, he blessed them. It's the first thing God wanted to do. God's mission in the lives of every human being on planet earth is to bless them. And the means by which he was going to bless these ones who did nothing but embrace a curse. Adam and Eve brought sin onto the world and brought a curse. Cain murdered his brother and brought a curse. Noah had a a bit of a fresh start, but he sinned as well. And then his son sinned against him, bringing another curse. Curse, curse, curse. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see God's plan to reverse the curse. And to bring a blessing, his original intention. And so God's plan has always been to bless. And it started with Abram, and he told him to go. But Abram's instructions here sound a lot like some other instructions. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. It sounds a lot like Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 28. Go. We're called to go. We're a people on the move. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go out to your cousins. Go out to the fellow descendants of Adam and Eve. Go out to those who unfortunately are living under the curse because of sin. Go out to them and bring them the message of blessing. 
So if, if you want to have a heart like God's heart, you got to obey his call to go. And you got to believe his promise that he's going to bless you. And you also need to understand that there's a responsibility for you to bless others. And you've got to have a heart for the mission to go to the ends of the earth. I love the way the Apostle Paul sums this up in Genesis chapter Three, as we're going out to our cousins the, 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 of the families of the earth, the fellow descendants of Adam and Eve, Paul says, know then that it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Remember, there was lots of racial tension in Galatia. There was the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians, and the Jewish Christians were trying to make the non-Jewish Christians leave behind their ethnic identity and become Jewish, get circumcised saying that you had to change your ethnic identity in order to become a Christian. That's not true. And he says that it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He says that we're all part of the same family. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles or the nations by faith. Notice what it says. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And what was the gospel? What was the good news that was preached in advance to Abraham? It was this, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He quotes Genesis 12. The gospel was preached in advance to Abraham, this blessing to all of the nations in him. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, Abraham, the man of Faith. So we are blessed like Abram was blessed if we believe in the descendant of Abraham, Jesus. And the amazing thing about Jesus is Jesus makes us sons of Abraham. Not, not just, so we're not just cousins. We're sons and we're daughters. And then in Christ, we're not just sons and daughters of Abraham, but we're sons and daughters of God. So, in Christ, so humanly, biologically speaking, we're all cousins. But spiritually speaking, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all belong to the same family. And how did this happen? How did this happen? This happened because someone chose to go and to be a blessing. And a blessing that would overflow to all nations. And I'm not just talking about Abraham. And I'm not just talking about you. Someone else chose to go. Someone else was told to go. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God. We sang about them this morning. We sang about Him this morning. God in three persons. The Father sent the Son. The Father told the Son, go. And He told the Son to be a blessing. And Jesus stood up on a mountain and what did he do? He pronounced blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And all he did was bless. He was a blessing everywhere that he went. But what did they do? They cursed him. They hung him up on a cross which brings a curse. They put a crown of thorns on his head which is a symbol of the curse. But then he rose from the dead and he told his disciples, listen, the father told me to go as the father sent me. Now I am sending you. So we are a people who are on the go because we follow a Savior who was on the go. We go to the nations because Jesus, Jesus left his kindred and his father's house. He left heaven. <laughs> he left his father's house in perfection, in the presence of God. And he came among us. 
and dwelt among us and brought a blessing and embraced the curse so that we, filled with the Holy Spirit, as the Father sent the Son, we too can be sent across the street or across an ocean to be a blessing to the ends of the earth.